Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM in Concord, and now 101.9 FM in Manchester, the Gate City. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening to this on the Beyond Politics podcast, please subscribe. Tell all your friends and share all about the show on social media. We're brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts in downtown Concord, New Hampshire. Two great venues serving up some tasty performances. CCANH.com. I'm very pleased to welcome as my guest today. My friend, former law partner, executive counselor, Cindy Warmington. Cindy, welcome to Capital Close-Up. It's such a pleasure to be with you today, Paul. Thank you. So I'm going to tell people a little bit about you uh, because they may not know and they ought to. Uh, executive counselor Cindy Warmington is a healthcare attorney, lifelong healthcare advocate. Uh, she began her practice at the law firm of Shaheen and Gordon firm I know very well, more than 20 years ago, became a partner and chair of the healthcare practice group. As an attorney, she advocated for the expansion of substance use disorder treatment services. She increased funding for mental health services and increased access to telehealth services. Her practice focused on representing healthcare providers from individuals to large hospital systems in a wide range of business and regulatory matters. And she was no stranger to healthcare because she worked in healthcare for two years, including as a medical technologist and in various healthcare management roles. Cindy is a dedicated volunteer. She's spent time working with very um, with several not-for-profit organizations in and around uh, the Concord area and in New Hampshire. She was educated at the University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth. She has an MBA from the University of Texas in Arlington. That was a different Texas back then. And a law degree from the University of New Hampshire School of Law. She lives in Concord with my dear friend and her husband, Bill Christie. She has two grown children, Emily and Adam, and two grandchildren for whom she loves to babysit. So that's, you know, I mean, there there you go, Cindy. It's um, It's really terrific to see you working in government for us, because in addition to all the, the accolades that and experience that I talked about, you've also um, devoted yourself to helping the Democratic Party uh, in New Hampshire for, for many years. Before you ran for office, you were one of those people in the, in the trenches. So um, the Democratic Party just completed a virtual convention on, on Saturday. How was it? What happened? Who showed up? Uh, what did people talk about? Well, before we start, let me, I have to just do two quick updates. One, I was in healthcare for 20 years before I went to law school, not two. And oh. I now have three grandchildren. We've had uh, a new one. So uh, <laughs> just, okay. just an update. There um, you go. I'm going to, yes. I'm, I'm updating the bio <laughs> as we speak. Okay. <laughs> so I, so I, um, yes, I did work with the Democratic Party for many years. I was a town chair. I was the officer of the Belknap County Democrats, and I lived up there. I was the platform committee chair for more than a decade, and I was honored to be uh, a co-chair of this year's virtual convention. So it was sort of a hybrid. We, we actually had um, an in-person part of the convention where certain people were there to speak in person, um, but the audience was all virtual. 
And, um, you know, I know that there were a few technical difficulties with the audio, but all in all, the message was right on point. Uh, Democrats' message is resounding. We've seen that as we've watched these special elections um, roll out and how well we're doing. We saw that on uh, November 2nd with the very successful municipal elections all across our state. And the message of Democrats is, is, is sounding with, um, with voters all across our state. And we just need to make sure that we keep it going and that we elect Democrats up and down the ballot. Yeah, it's been, it's been a rough go in New Hampshire since the last elections. Um, New Hampshire is such an eccentric place. Uh, voters are rather, rather fickle sometimes. Um, and it's hard with elections every two years to get voters to stay the course, even when the course is right. And what the, the voters delivered to New Hampshire was a radical right wing uh, takeover um, of our legislature, of the executive council on which you serve, and we'll talk about it, and in the corner office where uh, the governor has shown himself to be um, an anti-choice, um, an anti-choice advocate. Uh, after years of claiming that he favored women's reproductive rights, he signed a budget that contained just these extraordinary restrictions on a woman's right to control her own body. It 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 it's a stunning. It's really a a stunning thumb your nose at the voters in New Hampshire who do not care for those kinds of law. Yeah, and, and I think that the audience, our listening audience should be very clear on this. The governor has always said that he is a pro-choice governor, but he has never been a pro-choice governor. So going back to when he served on the executive council, he voted to defund Planned Parenthood, as governor, he vetoed the Reproductive Health Parity Act last year, and he appointed uh, Gordon McDonald, a lifelong anti-choice activist, to be the chief justice of our Supreme Court. And then finally, he signed into law a budget that contains the first um, meaningful abortion ban in our state in uh, 200 years and worse. Uh, you know, this ban is... Um, is so devastating and we can talk more about that, but it, it will um, negatively impact maternal fetal health across our state. Uh, so I think it's, um, it's really important that voters know about the ban, know about the forced ultrasounds, know about the um, financial reviews that they put in place and the destructive um, outcomes as a result of all of that. And I'm happy to talk more about that. <laughs> Well, good. I mean, let's because, I mean, you know, we can watch places like Texas and say, oh, my goodness, thank goodness we live in New Hampshire and not Texas. But Texas has now arrived in New Hampshire in terms of a woman's right to control her own body and make her own decisions. It's a patriarchal smackdown of titanic proportions and historic in New Hampshire. Right. So, you know, just to start with the. Um with the ultrasound, the forced ultrasound, which is, um, uh, it's required for any abortion at any stage of pregnancy, an ultrasound is now required. So at the early stages of pregnancy, that means a transvaginal ultrasound. That is a 10 inch probe inserted into uh, a woman's vagina to determine the 
uh, age of the of the fetus. Uh, it is a medically often medically unnecessary procedure, particularly in early pregnancy, um, and would not have ordinarily been done. What the impact of this is is first of all just humiliating women. It is for a um, a rape victim or an incest victim uh, a re-traumatization, and it. It serves no purpose. Uh, I have heard um, physicians from Dartmouth-Hitchcock explain that um, if the purpose was to decide whether the fetus was 24 weeks or not, it is totally useless for that purpose because by the time you reach 20 weeks, an ultrasound is, uh, has such a wide variation in accuracy in determining gestational age that it isn't even functional for that purpose. So this is really intended to demean Women and, and a practical impact is that for many women, uh, a medication abortion doesn't even require them to have an in-person visit, but this will now require that. Um, and it also um, increases cost. So uh, it's, it has widespread implications, um, particularly for um, pregnant women in um, their early stages of pregnancy. Now, in Texas, of course, the, the Texas legislature came up with a scheme where they 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 basically banned abortions and 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 empowered citizens all over the United States to sue uh, anybody participating in um, in in an abortion or referring somebody to an abortion. That's pretty crazy. Do, are there criminal penalties in New Hampshire now under this law for doctors? There are criminal penalties associated with the 24-week abortion ban. So let me just talk a little bit more about the 24-week abortion ban and why it is so dangerous. One, that it, it puts the lives of, of people with uteruses in, in danger, people who are pregnant in danger if they have uh, some sort of a, a critical event late, later in, in, in pregnancy. And just to be clear, 24-week um, um, abortions um, after 24 weeks are not done for elective purposes. That does not happen. And um, I don't think there's any, any evidence whatsoever that that happens in our state. So these are only done when the life or health of the mother is at risk or the, or the, um, the fetus has a fatal anomaly. But let me just talk about, in addition to the risk, the terrible risk that it places women uh, at, it also um, threatens our entire maternal fetal health care system because the subspecialists who handle these very high-risk pregnancies in our state are primarily at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We have 4.5 FTEs of these doctors in our state, maternal fetal specialists. And the only reason that we have nurses, midwives, and obstetricians willing to practice in our rural areas is because they have this resource where they can send their high-risk pregnancies. It is just too risky and too dangerous to be practicing in these very, very rural areas with no access to subspecialty services. And they have criminalized um, a doctor for, who performs an abortion after 24 weeks, except in the case of the life of the mother, no exception for the health of the mother. Um, and they have criminalized this. And what we're being told is that doctors aren't going to come here. They simply will not practice in our state if there's a threat that by practicing, they are going to be criminalized. And, by, and once we lose those subspecialists, we're going to lose the 
obstetricians, the midwives, the whole system is dependent on this. So this is really a devastating impact on our state. Well, I'm certainly hoping that voters around the state uh, pay attention to, to what's happened because voting has consequences and the consequences in New Hampshire of, of the last time around have been, have been pretty devastating uh, in terms of the right-wing takeover. And, now, and you now serve on an executive council that has a four-to-one Republican uh, majority. Um, that also turned around in the, in the last election. And you have been, I'll put it mildly, the lone voice of reason uh, in, a, in, in what seems to be, to me, a bit of an, a circus of insanity. Uh, not, not, to over, not to overstate it, because I don't like to be hyperbolic, but I actually attended the executive council meeting uh, in Nashua, New Hampshire, where the executive council basically uh, voted down uh, any uh, voted down funding for Planned Parenthood, um, and I was I was taken aback by the level of rudeness and vitriol that I heard coming from uh, at least one of the councilors, David Wheeler in particular, seemed to be the leader of the pack when it came to vitriol and rudeness. Um, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? As an executive counselor, um, how do you maintain a working relationship with people not just with whom you probably disagree most frequently on major issues that have any political import, but also people who behave so badly and are such an embarrassment uh, to their office and to the people of New Hampshire? Um, I, I think that uh, you, as well as I, have had good training in that and in, in being <laughs> lawyers. Um, I think that in New Hampshire, honestly, right? In New Hampshire, yeah. you know, the bar in New Hampshire is so small and you can be on the same side of a case with a lawyer one day and you can be on the opposite side of, of a case with the same lawyer. And uh, you can, you know, you did uh, criminal prosecutions and you know that you, you're working with your opposition and you work hard and you advocate for your client. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you go out, maybe have lunch together, right? At the, or, you know, um, sit down and, and enjoy a cup of coffee or just talk about your family. And, and that is, that, that's just the norm for a lawyer, right? So I think we're well-trained in that. Right. And people will see me um, interacting, I hope, with not only the other counselors, but the um, commissioners, the other people on, on the other side, um, that uh, politically we may be juxtaposed, but we can't forget that we're still all real people. And uh, I try to treat everybody with dignity and respect. So the executive council in New Hampshire is rather unique. It's uh, it 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 can act as a check on the governor. It can act as a support for the governor. It uh, executive council districts are very very big, um, and these days, at least in the past few years, the executive council has become a place of significant import um, in in terms of 
politics. Uh, it used to be it used to be kind of a sleepy thing. The executive council, you you didn't really hear about it. Um, all the contracts in the state, the appointments came before the executive council, but it was never really politicized. And years years ago, um, there were councilors like Ray Burton who, who represented the North Country, and although he was a Republican, I. I, I, I spent a lot of time with Ray because when I was a congressman, I really loved to visit the North Country. And he was he was delighted to have me and 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 take me around to him. It didn't matter that I was a Democrat. Um, he you know, he'd say in in a traditional New Hampshire accent, oh, I, you know, as long as we're we're serving the people, we're fine. And I mean, basically, he he didn't care whether you were a Democrat or Republican, as long as you. Uh, love the North Country. That was that was the Ray the Ray Burton approach. That seems to have gone a bit by the wayside. So so you know, taking running for office is is itself a uh, it's a serious undertaking. And running for the executive council now in New Hampshire is a is a big political job. I mean, it's it's almost like running for Congress or the U.S. Senate. It, it your your district is huge. So tell tell folks a little bit about your district, how you serve the various interests and constituencies that make up such a wide ranging district. And I'm curious to know what your expectations were when you first took office. So let me start with um, when I lived in the North Country, or not 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 north of the Notch, but when I lived in um, the Lakes region, Ray Burton was my executive counselor, and I always um, alleged that he was secretly a triplet because there's no way any one person could be at so many old home day parades at the same time. Right. <laughs> he was he was a real yeah, right. he, he cloned. He he was, he was a clone like Dolly the sheep. <laughs> but um, but I would say my district, as you said, spans all the way from the Vermont border, from um, Hinsdale, um, Keene to Concord, to all the way to the to Maine border. So to Durham, Dover, Rollingsford, you know, I am covering all the way across the state. And the district is intentionally gerrymandered to be the only Democratic district. And the needs, as you point out, are quite varying across the state. And we've been dealing, for instance, with the flooding issues in the western part of the state, which devastated some of our towns there, um, which really need our help and, um, and are still not recovered from that, um, you know, across the district to transportation issues and um, um, and, you know, various concerns, uh, uh, housing, affordable housing in Keene, as well as in Dover. Some issues are the same. In Concord, you know, we're talking about um, the expansion of I-95. Um, everywhere across the district, we're worried about schools um, and about property taxes. And that is consistent no matter where we are. Um, but it's a pleasure for me to serve uh, the people of the state anywhere uh, and all across my district. The day in, day out work of the executive council has an extraordinary impact on the lives of people in the state. All the contracts uh, over $10,000, as I recall, that, that come to the state have to be reviewed and approved by the executive council, all the appointments the governor makes. So the issues are wide ranging and 
and, and issues of deep impact. And you, you're working with people on a day-to-day -day basis. And while the high profile uh, issues seem rancorous, I'm betting that a lot of the other issues are issues where you all work together to help the people in the state. Before the break, I, I had asked what your expectations were when you first took office, and we didn't get to that. So I'm curious, what 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 were you thinking? What, what, were, what were you thinking? And, and what were your expectations? Well, I was I did expect to commit my full time attention to this position from the start. I recognized and wrote op-eds about the power of the executive council that is yet to be tapped. And I think that is, um, you know, really does require my full-time attention. But you know, I expected to be reviewing contracts um, and we can talk a little bit about that, but we, I expected to be reviewing nominations, doing hearings. And I, one part of the job that a lot of people don't know about is the constituent services side of it. The executive counselor really is the interface between the public and the executive branch. So anyone that's having a problem with any agency in our state can call their executive counselor and the executive counselor can pick up the phone and, and intervene and get them in touch with the right people or help them help them. And, and that is um, a really a rewarding part of this job. What I did not expect was to be in a 4-1 minority. <laughs> that was a surprise and honestly changed the way that I approached the job. And I can talk about that. And, um, uh, and also, I did not expect the um, to need a security, uh, be offered a security detail. <laughs> the, the threats that came in were um, you know, disappointing that people really do need to understand that this is democracy in action, that we all speak our minds and we have our say, and then we make our decisions and we move forward. And that's how I conduct myself as an executive counselor and how um, I expect to be treated and the, the threats and certainly the um, threats of potential violence and shutting down meetings, I think is disappointing. And we hope to not see that again. So I am curious about uh, what you said about changing the way you approached your job because of the change in majority minority as you're, it's four to one, you're the lone Democrat. What did, how, how did you change your approach? Well, I mean, if you think about being the, in a minority, it's different than being in the majority, which we had hoped for. So from the minority perspective, one of the key things you have to focus on is how do we stay relevant and how do I use this very minority position to make sure that we lift up our values? And that is, that is a different approach. And that means you know, just really um, focusing in um, on each, each meeting at each nomination um, and having a plan when you go in about what you what what do you want to talk about and what do you want people who are listening to come away with what do you want the press to write about and we're very diligent about that um, I am very judicious with my no votes if I vote no on everything I'm irrelevant I I you know I think a lot of people might want me to just reject every conservative nomination that the governor makes, but the reality is elections have consequences. He's the governor and he gets to make nominations. And my standards are often, you know, just is this person, um, do they actually have the qualifications for the 
the job that they've been appointed to? And do they believe in the mission of the agency? So I'll give you an example. You know, the Department of Education, I simply don't believe that Frank Edelblut believes in the mission of the agency. I don't believe he believes in public education. And in fact, I think he's destroying public education in our state. And I have voted against Frank Edelblut and against all of the nominations um, to the Board of Education, who are also people that are like-minded. But in other areas where we have a number of conservatives um, that have been brought forward, um, then, you know, if they're qualified and if they actually believe in the mission of the agency, then I will vote to support them. Um, example, the recent PUC uh, commissioners, um, I voted against um, Dan Goldner, who does not believe in climate change to be a PUC commissioner. And I voted for uh, another nominee who's conservative, but um, who is clearly qualified and who does believe in the mission of the agency. Well, your, your, your approach is laudable. Um, your patience is commendable. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's refreshing to have somebody who uh, maintains their, their values and principles, but also uh, understands the way government works. Um, and I'm hoping people take note, certainly um, in terms of your, your vote not to confirm uh, somebody like Frank Edelblut, who just put up on the education commissioner's website, um, basically a, 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 essentially a vigilante version of let's go after uh, teachers who teach about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, a, uh, he launched a website on which concerned parents can file reports on teachers who they suspect of violating the Edelblut and Sununu law against teaching about the true history and current reality of systemic racism. Um, uh, and, and just after they put it up, of course, the quote, Moms for Liberty tweeted out uh, that they were going to offer $500 to catch teachers. Um, I mean, it's it's a it was a it's a bounty reward that is the natural um, result of this crazy idea that we can't teach history of of race in this country. Uh, that's what it is. It's designed to censor teachers. It's designed to shut down debate. It's designed to um, um, to continue a systemic racist approach to the teaching of American history when people need to know what really happened and what history really is about. And we've all had, uh, or many of us have had our eyes opened in the past few years about the results of hundreds and hundreds of years of systemic racism and why it matters. But I digress. Let's go to uh, something of, of serious life and death import. The state just announced 2,220 new COVID cases on Friday, 657 people under the age of 18, 255 people hospitalized, five, five new deaths, um, which we mourn tremendously. And there is a, a winter surge coming. And in the face of those kinds of statistics, a few weeks ago, the executive council on which you serve in a very public display voted down accepting 
millions of dollars from the federal government to uh, to to help uh, vaccinate people. You single-handedly, it seemed to me from reading in the press, used your skill and experience and the personal relationships you had developed. And somehow, somehow, a few weeks later, the executive council, which had voted down accepting the money, voted to accept the money. It was stunning. It is a remarkable political achievement. How did you do it? Well, um, so let's just start with um, the day that that came before the council for the first time was the same day that the Planned Parenthood contracts were voted down. And I, this totally blindsided me. I had no idea that this, uh, these contracts were controversial until late the afternoon before the council meeting, I started getting some calls like vote down this money, vote down this money. And I got a few calls on the way over there but they were really mixed with Planned Parenthood calls at the same time, um, you know, making sure we either fund or people wanting me not to fund Planned Parenthood. So this really took me by surprise. And the vote came up and the Republican counselors voted to um, reject this money. And I was a bit shocked by that, but it was followed immediately on the heels with the Planned Parenthood discussion. And then we came around to the end of the Health and Human Services contracts. And I thought to myself, I can't let this sit here on the, you know, having been voted down. So I raised it at that point and said, Governor, and I think he was a little surprised. I said, Governor, we need, um, you know, we've just rejected $27 million in funding. And I think that we need to bring that, bring that contract back. We need to reconsider that vote, put it on the table. Let's let Department of Health and Human Services come and explain to us what this money's all about. And, um, and we barely managed to do that. We barely managed to get a second to reconsider um, and, and then a second uh, and a vote to put it on the table, um, three, two, just to put it on the table. They wanted to vote it down again quietly. And this goes back to what you said before about the council historically being a sleepy um, council, a body. The truth is they would rubber stamp and do things quietly and under the table like that, that people didn't see. And so what having a, um, a committed and vocal minority does on the executive council is bring transparency to these issues and say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you're not doing that. If you're doing that, you're not doing it quietly. So we had the issue back on the table. And that's when we came to the next meeting um, with the protesters. And honestly, the counselors really just caved. They really just caved to this really radical right-wing fringe group of anti-vaxxers who do not represent the vast majority of New Hampshire uh, citizens who want us to get this pandemic behind us, get people vaccinated, get back to work, get our childcare centers open and, and get this pandemic behind us. So um, uh, I continued to raise that issue um, at subsequent meetings and I continued to work behind the scenes to make sure that they were all hearing about this from constituents in their districts and um, pushing the, you know, the, as you said, the relationships that I've built in healthcare and otherwise to make sure that that message was getting to them loud and clear. And I think I, you know, while I 
get much of the credit. It is also the advocacy of all of the people across our state who really made it clear that we cannot, we cannot reject these funds. And the fact that there's more money coming, there's more money coming with this exact same language in it. Um, and, and, you know, that was, I think, you know, difficult, making it difficult for these counselors because, um, you know, we were going to have to go through this again. And what are we going to do? Just be rejecting tens of millions of dollars that we really need in the middle of a surge. Uh, you know, it's, it was just, I think, became too much of a political liability for them. Well, it's, it's a testament to, I think, your persistence. It's a testament to the fact that you're there, but it also um, is a testament to your understanding of the importance of grassroots organizing in politics, because it sounds from uh, what you've just said, like you understood that uh, working, working the phones, getting out the, the troops on the, uh, in the grassroots, the individuals, the organizations, uh, to whom this really mattered and getting them to put the pressure uh, on the executive, other executive counselors to bring them around and, and, and create an, an inescapable um, dilemma for them and an overwhelming show of support for accepting the money. Um, so uh, kudos to you, kudos to all the folks who stepped in to help sway uh, the executive counselors. Um, the 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 spectacle that was created at that first meeting of the uh, that you described with the people getting up and shouting and shutting down the the um, the council meeting was was really pretty stark. That was for me one of the most startling displays I've ever seen in politics in New Hampshire. When I I mean when I was in Congress ten years ago. We had the 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 light version um, uh, of of the of the kinds of violence we've now seen that have become routine in America. You know, I'm thinking, of course, there's January 6th, and we now have a congressional committee investigating how the highest office in the land, the president and his henchmen, um, tried to steal uh, the election, tried to stage a coup. Um, and 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and uh, now in 2010, on the day I voted for the Affordable Care Act, uh, the Democrats walked across from their offices to the Capitol. Um, and the Capitol was surrounded at the time by a mob, by a huge mob, waving flags, shouting, um, uh, uh, demonstrating against uh, health care. Um, while a few folks in tie-dye shirts and Birkenstocks uh, held up signs saying we want health care. But it never got violent. Um, the security was light by comparison to what's going on today. And now you as an executive counselor in the state of New Hampshire are worried about your security. And people in New Hampshire are, are trying to, to take away the democratic right of people to be heard and conduct their affairs in a business-like way. What's a poor executive counselor to do? What do you think? How do we how do we deal with it in New Hampshire? I mean, let alone in the country. Uh, we'll we'll put that aside. But but I was concerned because I thought there must have been police present, but nobody intervened to shut this down. Why not? What did the governor do? 
And where was the governor when those people stood up and shut down the meeting? Why did David Wheeler come out to talk to those people, an executive counselor? Where was the governor exercising some leadership to protect democracy? Um, I, I will tell you that meeting got out of hand in between um, the breakfast meeting and the um, regularly scheduled meeting of the executive council. Um, I was at that point in a room with over a hundred anti-vaxxers who were unmasked. Um, and so I opted to wait out in the back um, for the, in between those two meetings. And so did not know actually that the meeting had gotten as out of hand as it did. When our employees started to arrive, my understanding in the report that we got back was that the mob was encircling them and threatening them with taunting them about wearing masks and threatening them about, we know where you live and that sort of thing. And um, to the point that our employees left and um, the commissioner of health and human services said, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not exposing my employees to this. And, um, and they were escorted out by um, state police out of the room. So I don't actually have firsthand knowledge of what happened in that room in between those two meetings. Um, I do know that once the decision was made and it was made based on the fact that our employees were threatened and um, left and that, that police were reporting that um, it could be a dangerous situation out there if they tried to shut it down. Uh, there were elderly people in the room and children in the room at the time and uh, that they did not, they were concerned that if they tried to take action at that point that it, people could get hurt. Um, and so the, that was the reason that the meeting was shut down. And then at that point, all of the counselors, not just Councillor Wheeler, but all of the counselors returned to the podium to, and Councillor Wheeler made the announcement um, primarily because the, these are his people. Um, he, he's the one that encourages them to come to these meetings. So, um, he fought for, he even said to them, I fought for you to get into the meeting. So these are his people. And he, he made the announcement, but all of the counselors went. And I, I mean, I just want to say that sometimes it just takes courage to govern. And, and that is what you need to do. You need to, you know, stand up and go back out there and, and govern. And in that case, we followed the advice of security. And we also recognize that our employees didn't feel safe and had left the building. So are, are, are all the executive counselors vaccinated? Do you know? I don't know. Has anybody, have you ever asked? Um, I have asked. Um, uh, one counselor um, does declines to answer. And uh, another counselor I asked, um, uh, and he reported that he had had covid um, and so hadn't been vaccinated because he was within his 90 days, but I don't know if he's since been vaccinated. Has the governor ever talked uh, to the counselors about whether or not they ought to be vaccinated? Has he ever expressed an opinion about, the, about getting vaccinations? No. So out in public, he talks, you know, he talks a good game. He tells people, oh, the vaccine is the answer. Go get vaccinated. But apparently... Uh, in the confines of the executive council, where people are working close together, the governor doesn't exercise that kind of leadership. He's never asked. That's all I can say. So what do you make of his decision not to run for the U.S. Senate? 
I think that he recognizes that Maggie Hassan is a formidable opponent and that um, it would be a very tough race for him to win uh, to win that seat. And um, I think she scared him off. There you go. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to Governor Lynch often about uh, his political aspirations. And he said, why would I want to go to Washington? My God, you know, he, he had absolutely no interest in leaving, leaving New Hampshire to, to go to Washington, D.C. Now, I loved my job as a congressman. I mean, I was I was I, I loved serving the people. I loved the give and take. I, I, I didn't the travel was the travel was tough, um, you know, back and forth all the time. But uh, the privilege of of serving and dealing with national issues and actually being able to get something done to to make change was 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 really important. But it's not for everybody. And uh, I'm curious, maybe we could make some breaking news. Here's the here's the non softball question. So what are you thinking about in terms of your political future? And uh uh, where do we go from here? And uh, the rumors are, are circulating. They say, you know, that Cindy Warmington is showing that she's got a backbone. She's got she's got the stuff. Um, so what are you thinking? Um, I am thinking that we really need to have a majority on the executive council. You're going to be hearing more about what we've actually been doing in addition to my work as an executive counselor in um, standing up um, an effort to make sure that we take back the majority on the executive council in 2022. And honestly, it is so important, whether there is a Democrat or a Republican sitting in that corner office that we have control of the executive council. People don't realize it, but the executive council is important and we are focused on making sure people, people recognize it and don't skip over it when they vote. Folks, this is Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We've been talking with Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington about what goes on behind the scenes at New Hampshire's Executive Council. Cindy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Good to see you. We'll, we'll be back next week with another Capital Close-Up. Thanks for listening.